previously on Storyological. <laughs> really, I, I, I want a partner to have had a Gandalf in their life. I want them to have found their way, to have their magical stick that I guess they stole from Gandalf. <laughs> I don't know. So really I want, what you're looking for is some kind of golem. street thief yes. who breaks into song occasionally. A street golem. I want, I want a pragmatic, uh, broken, magical person. I want somebody that is able to say, I'm, I know I'm evil, uh, but, you know, I try to do good in the world anyway. And occasionally I have to steal an old man's stick to accomplish that. Also, he's got that horse. He doesn't need a walking stick. That always seemed weird to me. Why has this old man got a walking stick? He's both magic and he has a horse. It's almost like it's not even a walking stick, but just a focal point for his magic. Whatever. Look outside. It's still, it's still a day in London. I mean, you want to say it's a beautiful day, but it's a day. Yeah, it's just kind of hanging on around the trees like a wet blanket. Yeah, yeah. I've heard some people describe that blanket as a very comforting thing. You know, it's not, it's not extreme. You know, it's not like in the U.S. where it's bright blue or it's thunder. Here, it's just a cool winter's, cool almost winter, rainy day. You sit with a book, have a bit of tea, mm -hmm. make up songs with a friend about James Joyce. Sally's your grandmother. Isn't that the British phrase? And Sally's your grandmother. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I saw Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz discussing British slang on the internet. <laughs> But that was charming. Yeah, Emma was like, I've heard that Bob's your uncle. What does that mean? Is that really not a phrase that you guys say? Can you imagine? Just when you ask that question, I want you to imagine George Clooney sitting next to you and saying the phrase. Any phrase you're wondering, does an American say oh, that? Oh, this is a good game. Yeah, and just imagine George Clooney and Bob's your uncle. Yeah, yeah. I can, I can, can make that work. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Then it's actually an American phrase. Not many Americans know it, but George Clooney keeps it. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the gravitas to pull it off. I think that's the problem with that game right there. Maybe a see if I ask you to imagine Zoe Deschanel doing it again, she can pull it off because you can't tell if she's British or not. She could have been she was a British baby dropped on her head and then rolled into America. <laughs> <laughs> rolled into America down a hill like a yes. like a cheese in a tiny yeah, village. She's actually very old. Actually very old. She rolled across the land bridge. She went across. <laughs> The Asian continent rolled across the land bridge down through Alaska and Canada. That's why she's always singing those weird songs and, and has that weird voice that you describe as one perpetually drunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. She actually is the 14th doctor. Just don't know it yet. After what's her name that's doing it now? Yeah. Can you imagine though? Now I'm really into it. Imagine a 57 year old Zoe Deschanel as Being the, the doctor. doctor. Yeah. I, I would watch it. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I'm ready for it. Let's wind up this time clock. Let's get going. <laughs> Let's get... I'm ready. I've already eliminated everything else I need in my life. Let's just skip right to that. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. Uh, my pick for this week. When We Were Happy, We Had Other Names by Yi Yun Lee. It was published in The New Yorker in September of <laughs> this year. Twas. Twas published in... The... <laughs> like, like a little Dickensian orphan. Twas published in The New Yorker in September of this year, 2018. The story, uh, like so many stories I love, is really a story made up of many stories. A teenage son has died. His mother wonders what to make of death and grief. And her attempts to make sense of everything, to fight against the generic generalness of death, she makes a spreadsheet of everyone she remembers that is dead, filling in the empty boxes with names and dates and anecdotes, 
And here the story opens into the other lives. This grief that Jiu feels has led her deeper into her past, and she has found there a collection of windows onto other worlds and other times. And in one particular world, in one particular time, there is her grandfather. And she has seen in him and in a memory something she has always known and for so long forgotten about his life and about his death. This story, like a story we discussed, I think, in our first season, uses uh, a radio as a kind of bridge into a character's emotional feelings. And it's one that I enjoy a great deal. Uh, One of the early paragraphs in this story goes as follows. This new flimsy routine reminded Yu of her first transistor radio, a birthday present from her grandfather when she turned five. It was a luxury for a five-year-old, frustrating too since it was not easy for her fingers to manoeuvre the dial to find the one station with a half-hour afternoon preschool programme. And when she did succeed, the dial stayed at the right frequency for no more than a few minutes before it began to shift, and the songs about thieving foxes and partying bears would drift into static. And when I read that bit, Drift Into Static, I was that was what unlocked this story for me. The, it's a kind of a a kind of a, a just exploration of that feeling of existing in that static and turning around trying to find the way out of it or maybe just the way to get comfortable in it. And I thought about uh, pet milk, Stuart Dybeck's pet milk and the way he talks about his grandma and her addiction to the radio and about it not really mattering what it is that's on the radio she's just happy that it's not english voices and and i thought about the contrast between these two stories like that is all told as a reminiscence and it's so full of life and potential and this is told pretty much in the present tense and it's full of death and the cutting off of potential and i really enjoyed understanding this story in contrast to that and understanding how it feels as I'm reading it. You know, she's got these beautiful turns of phrases, these beautiful kind of uh, ways of putting you in that feeling of having part of your emotions chopped out of you. It'll be interesting to see when we get around to the end whether you feel like I do that it has a similar rush, as in pet milk, of potential in its closing lines. But before we get to that, you see what we're doing? We're creating suspense. I think it's interesting that you pull out the radio because a lot of people, you may know, listen to the radio as they fall asleep because they don't like the silence. And death is often celebrated and mourned by people getting together and singing songs and telling stories that that even in the static, there is a bulwark against the darkness. Uh, Is bulwark the right word? Yeah, I think so. It's one of those words that I'm just... I just use recklessly. Uh, there is in Philip Roth's novel, The Human Stain, a moment in that book at a grave in which Roth's alter ego, Nathan Zuckerman, also a writer, has this to say about death and being a writer. Out there at his grave, where everything he ever was would appear to have been cancelled out by the weight and mass of all that earth, if by nothing else, I waited and waited for him to speak, until at last I heard him. And that is how all this began, by my standing alone in a darkening graveyard and entering into professional competition with death. When I first read that, I thought about writing the eulogy for my dad and realizing that for however long I spoke in that church in front of all those people, however long it took, it was my job to bring my dad back to life. 
I realized that was the work of every story, to bring the dead back to life. That was my profession, this competition against death. And there is this passage in, in Lee's story where she writes, 50, liver cancer. When Jiu typed this next to the man's name, she could not see him as an older man. Once he and Sister Wen had taken Jiu for a ride, Jiu had climbed into the sidecar, clutching the metal in front of her and looking up at Sister Wen and her boyfriend, she in an apricot-colored dress, he in a white uniform. When we were happy, we had other names. Jiu remembered reading that line as a student, though she could not recall the context now. A young couple in love and a child wanting nothing more than to witness that love story. What were they all now? A dead man, a widow, and a mother who had lost a child. I thought about how the story, Lee's story in a sense, which is only a list of one woman's thoughts about grief, it feels like maybe she's not fighting death. Maybe she's trying to make sense of it, or as you said, trying to find a way to comfortably live in it. But in either case, whether she's fighting it or trying to find a way to live, live in it, it does seem like she's trying to imagine that memory has some power against grief and against death. Yeah, I think that's so right. That that her her quest in this story is this listing of people who have died and trying to unearth her memories about them. And it's like that use of memory is allowing her to place her emotions in these little dimples in the universe and, and sort of almost like apportion them out into manageable sizes. You know, because her kid has killed himself and she cannot possibly deal with that. What she can deal with is with all of these tiny griefs, the the small ones that have happened throughout her life of losing people, losing people she knew well, losing, losing people that she barely knew, losing people that she didn't know but heard of through someone else. And it's through that gradual building up like you know, like when somebody has a peanut allergy and then gradually take a little bit more peanut every day before you know they're actually able to their body is able to carry the weight of that in them that's what i feel like this story is doing it's just it's building up to the point where at some point in the future she will be able to address the grief about her son I love this story for how Lee treats death, not as the end of a life, but as she describes at the end of the story, death can be seen as an antechamber to life. It is the beginning of seeing more of life itself. And I love how, for all that desire to see death uh, as something other than the end, and grief as something more than pain, we see, like we were saying there about Jiu's inability to talk about Evan, something miraculous in the way Lee makes this story all of those memories of the past are written at Lee, like Yi Yan Lee's writerly best. And whenever she has Ji Yu and her husband talking about Evan, she falls into a very pedantic, cliche, generic, general way of speaking about death that sounds no different from the most cliche rendering you've ever read of parents discussing the loss of a child and how it doesn't make any sense. And she builds up to the most writerly perfection and describing to use remembering about her grandfather remembering a memory of him trying to reach out to a woman that was much younger than him maybe as a friendship maybe as something more and it not going that great and remembering this and remembering his death something happens where suddenly she grieves for the grandfather again she grieves for him in a way that she thinks better than she did the first time 
And I thought, you know, why would she do that? Why would she write the past in one way and write the thoughts about Evan in another? What is the struggle there? And I thought about how in all of those failures to write about Evan, there was in the memories a success. And I feel like part of the answer of why the story moved me so much is that at the end of the story, Jiu says, true grief, beginning in disbelief and often ending elsewhere, was never too late. And while it's kind of obvious, it's also kind of magic that she's not just talking about her grandfather there. She's talking about the potential for herself. She's talking about her own disbelieving grief and the death of her son, one that we have watched her not be able to process at all. And you can imagine, though this isn't in the story, you can imagine in all of these rememberings about the death is the, the guilt and the sense of failure that she can't do this for her own son. She can't write any of the stories of him yet. And the fact that his name isn't mentioned at all at the end, there's just that line about true grief and the idea that you can find some deeper understanding of a death long after it's happened. There's such hope there to me. There is such a thrill of potential for all that we have lost and all we will continue to lose. I thought a lot at the end of this about what grief is. What does it mean when you say I'm grieving? And it's grieving about, to me, it's about reckoning with the ending, with the death of your hopes for the future, in a way. Acknowledging your hurt and being able to sit with it and understand where it's coming from. And I thought a lot about the Artist's Way book that I worked through this summer and how in that book they talk about, or she talks about, um, understanding that it can be valuable to grieve for all sorts of things, for failed projects, for lost, uh, lost grant money, for friendships that didn't go as you wanted them to. To understand that grief in that sense is about acknowledging is about yeah is about not burying that pain is about looking at that pain holding it up to the light and being you know and saying you know what yeah this pain exists because when you acknowledge it it no longer controls you it no longer dominates your life without you understanding or realizing it and i think that is the beautiful thing about grief once you actually start to engage with it it means that it is no longer clouding you with static, that you actually start to exist outside of that. I'm thinking about how possible it is that I would not have loved this story so much if it had been about her coming to terms with her grief for the loss of her son, of facing it directly, versus the question it left you with, the question that it's hammering away at all the time that you were asking there about what is grief. I'm not sure. I'm sure there's a distinction between ignoring pain and not ignoring pain. But I'm not sure we ever know that we've really faced the depths of our grief or the depths of our pain until we are dead, in which case, well, we've got no more left to give. The fact that in this story, it feels like grief isn't just something you face. It's just a, another story that you're constantly living. It's a, a never-ending process, really. This is one way that she's grieving now. You know, 10 years from now, she may lose something else that teaches her what it meant to lose her son. And 10 years after that, she'll lose something else that it may always be a game of catch-up. 
I think one of my least favorite phrases in the world is get over it. Or you should, you know, people thinking they should be able to get over pain or grief, telling other people they should be getting over it when, when it's not. It's something that you find a way to absorb into yourself. Yeah, yeah, I was like, don't tell me to get over it. Tell me to live through it. Hey, guess what? I picked a story too. <laughs> wow. I mean, what a Christmas. It sure is. I picked Don't Look Now by Daphne du Maurier. This is a story about John and Laura, who are a couple on holiday in Venice to attempt to uh, recover from the death of their young daughter. Weirdly, completely independently, Chris and I both picked stories about dead children this week. I don't know why these things happen to us. Maybe it's just something in the air. While they're on holiday, they meet a pair of elderly ladies, one of whom is psychic, and says she has seen their recently dead daughter sitting happily nearby. And this is the moment in the first few pages of the story where the couple, John and Laura, split apart of the, the tenuous kind of hold they have on each other. Laura's reaction is to be deeply comforted by this. She has been openly and weepingly grieving about the death of her child and to her this hearing that she's safe and nearby and happy is a comfort whereas for john who's seems to have been spending his time thinking i'm doing such a good job having no feelings about this i'm so fine why is my wife still sad um he's buried it all down deep and for him hearing this sends him into a kind of a tailspin uh you know, at first he tries to kind of tell himself because he's afraid of what it will do to Laura, but really you can, you start to see him unravel during the story. It becomes clear that this means that he, it, <laughs> it stops him being able to do such a good job of burying his own pain. And I think that his disintegration is one of the most interesting and my favorite things about this story. It's, it seems to fall into the branch of hysterical women fiction, except that it's him who's hysterical. It's him who's completely unmade by this situation. And Laura is pretty level-headed and copes with it all fairly well. And he descends into panic, anxiety and paranoia. Um, and then ultimately a sad death. I think the first thing I wrote when I finished the story was, what a marvel of dread. Josh Whedon said this thing once that vampires, sure, scary, demons, scary. You know, the scariest thing is when people you love start acting weird. Or just really people, just when people start acting weird. And there is that moment at the very beginning of the story has John and Laura making up these stories about the elderly women. Maybe... Uh, they're trying to hypnotize them. Maybe they're criminals changing sex from city to city. Who can say? And that scene ends with one of the old ladies staring at John. And it freaks him out. People should not be looking at other people. It's very scary. And it's such a small thing. But it's such a strange thing that is deeply familiar and terrifying to us when we read it. She's created that feeling of something has its eye on you. And that feeling that you, where you have the hairs raised on the back of your neck because you feel something's looking at you. This is all over the story. People are imagining all the time that they are the target, the victim of some evil intention, some force working its will against them. 
and well, I guess when I say people, I mainly mean John, uh, and possibly this other couple he meets at a police station who are convinced that all Italy is full of thieves and they've targeted them and stolen their purse and nobody's going to listen to them. Everything's out to get them. So at the center of the story is a certainty of a point of view that there is some dread menace coming for you. And that to me is the, the marvel of the dread here, that Moria is shifting our sense that there is something wrong with the world into a sense that there's something wrong just around the corner to the sense that there's something wrong inside of John, that we really only get right at the end where we realize that certainty of a point of view, that sense that something's out to get him, is his own inability to look. When I came to the end of this, I, I, I loved that sense of dread. And, and I was wondering, I was like, is it, is it critical that ghost stories are filled with anxiety? And I thought about the haunting of Hill House and the kind of anxiety that, that penetrates that story as well. And I thought, I don't know if it's critical to a ghost story existing, but I think it's pretty critical to my enjoyment of it. It's so much more exciting and interesting to understand that the dread comes from his imagination, his thinking, rather than, you know, he's running away from an actual killer for most of the story, which I feel like is most horror movies and quite a lot of horror stories. It's like, no, that's that's not the interesting part of it. The interesting part of it is how he is psyching himself out and kind of disintegrates. And, you know, he, she uses amazing motifs to make it happen. The, the, the things like this, the twin elderly sisters turning up again and again, the scream in the night as they walk, the fact that she picks these details that demonstrates his uh, unmaking, like the fact that he orders some weird thing when he goes out for dinner with Laura, that he doesn't know what it is and it comes to the table and it's some kind of liver thing that he doesn't want to eat. And that just sort of fills his mouth and his mind with his discomfort. And I'm like, oh, this is so good. It's so, it's so kind of rich. He's so mired in his own inability to uh, really take part in what is happening in their lives right then. One of the things Demoria excels at is uh, transforming what we see as natural. So natural is to be invisible into something exceedingly supernatural and really visible like the birds right she wrote the bird story birds are everywhere we hardly even notice them what if they swooped out of the sky and attacked us now we see them and we're scared freaked out crazy birds uh and here right yes like he orders liver something he doesn't want but it's not like we're scared by liver. We've been in <laughs> restaurants with liver before. I mean, I have eaten it. It's pretty gross. But is it a sign of demonic intent? <laughs> like your life is unfurled? Usually not. But Demoria, she situates us from the very beginning in this trite phrase that you hear all the time of it's all in your head. It begins with them looking at those old ladies and everything they say about them. We at first read as real. To a certain extent, John's like, they're trying to hypnotize me. You're like, really? I know this is De Maurier's story. Are they trying to hypnotize him? <laughs> and then Laura looks over there and starts talking about them. And you think, oh, is it? Oh, wait a minute. And then you're like, oh, they're playing a game. They're just making all of this up. All of this dread and feeling I started to have, it's not real. And then something will happen. You go, wait a minute. Is it something worse? Something I haven't thought about yet? Is that, what, is that what's going on? 
she does that really well. That, that scene you alluded to where they get, they get lost among the canals. Uh, this is the way that scene goes. The canal was narrow. The houses on either side seemed to close in upon it. And in the daytime, with the sun's reflection on the water and the windows of the house open, bedding upon the balconies, a canary singing in a cage, there had been an impression of warmth, of secluded shelter. Now, ill-lit, almost in darkness, the windows of the houses shuttered, the water dank, the scene appeared altogether different, neglected, poor, and the long, narrow boats moored to the slippery steps of cellar entrances looked like coffins. For me, the anxiety that makes all gothic, all ghost stories, all horror stories work, almost. Let's not say almost. Let's say what makes them work the hardest on me. I might not enjoy them the most, but the ones that make me most terrified are the ones that are doing what she's doing in the writing of that scene. At one time, it was like this. Now, you're in a different frame of mind, and it looks like this. The uncertainty, the possibility that it's all in your head, and the possibility that it's not all in your head, and you're going to die, that disconnect is the real horror. Yeah. So we need to talk about the ending of this story. Oh, yes, let's talk about the dwarf in the room. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. Are we, gonna, are we both <laughs> going to talk about it? Yeah, I think okay. so. I think so. So my, I mean, I had quite... Oh, by the way, spoilers which is always the case. But in this case, I mean, the end of the story is is a thing. So yeah, the end of the story is where John thinks he's trying to rescue a small child, chases, chases this small person into a room, locks the door, and it turns out to be uh, an elderly female dwarf with a knife who then kills him. And I mean, this, that's problematic on quite a number of levels. The thing that bothered me most about it, though, was how quickly she seemed to throw away the end of this story having spent paragraphs and paragraphs talking about turnings and lampposts and the dankness of the water in two paragraphs it's like now i'm in the room i've had my throat slit oh what a silly way to die it was like she seemed embarrassed by the end of the story (laughs) it was Uh. it was so frustrating to me to to have it conclude like that um yeah I think that way of ending is perfectly brutal and brilliant. Like it, it leave it's just annoying. I I can imagine why it's frustrating because it doesn't even seem like Demori is writing as well as she could write. Exactly. Just, yeah. She's just gone for it. I think, giving her the benefit of the doubt that she did it on purpose, there is a shock, and a ridiculousness, and just a pointlessness, that is rendered more more finely by how abrupt because all of the the fact that it's in counterpoint that everything she's done before seems on purpose that um that this moment where it's really real where this thing isn't in your head it's over in an instant and you have no time it's done mm-hmm. all that build up in your head that is in your head your head's really good at it um my dad used to say that the only people who are afraid of the dark are people with imagination <laughs> he meant it as a compliment, but I thought about it. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. Mm. Yeah, I was talking to one of our friends recently about the story and about the way it ends and thinking, I mean, sometimes you can debate an author's intention, like the way that she deploys, the way that she describes the thick-set woman dwarf, mad dwarf at the end of the story. Is she doing it 
intentionally to demonize a group of people. And with this story, you don't even really need to think about it. Did Demori do it on purpose? Well, the story did. Like mm. the story from the beginning when she's describing those two elderly ladies. One, it's two old ladies sitting together. That's scary. Creepy. Two, maybe they had a sex change. That makes them even scarier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end, when I was talking to my friend, I did this exercise. I thought, why couldn't she just have the little person that he's chasing, thinking he's going to save her from the evil people? Why can't, when she turns around, why can't she just be a murderous little girl with this rage in her face and, you know, just death in her eyes? And my friend said, well, I know you, Chris, but a lot of people might not immediately grok on to the possibility that a little girl would be murderous. And the author would have to do a whole bunch of work to make you believe that that little girl would be murderous. And we looked at each other and we were like, right, the effect is demonization. But I can imagine from a storyteller's point of view, at every step, she is just doing what seems to her the most efficient way to make you scared with the least amount of effort. So it's Playing almost, on the existing prejudices. Right, right. So it's like, as a writer, we were looking at each other and kind of exclaiming, demonization is one thing. But not only is she demonizing, she's being lazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or yeah, efficient. Lazy or efficient. Right, that, that exact thing... Uh, unlocked it for me she would have had to do work if it was a real little girl the work that she didn't do for the actual killer and that's why it is so problematic or maybe the the secret of why it it, just the construction of the scene bugs you because the fact that the killer turns out to be what it does in the story and the fact that it ends so quick it may reinforce what she wants which is the feeling of life's absurd joke But the fact that the absurd joke uses a kind of trope pulled off of the shelf of a group that is often marginalized and often seen as unnatural, as her method of creating the supernatural, yeah, it kind of leaves you cold. And even though each time I read the story, that joke feels just a little shallower and a little crueler. Every time I read the story, I still get caught up in the same marvel of dread and Sometimes I start to dread the ending because I really (laughs) am in love with how scared I am at nothing. Thanks for listening, readers. We have not managed to talk about all of the things about these stories. Uh, Yes, nor have we managed to discuss all of the stories in the world. Uh, So if you would like to uh, add your comments or recommend us stories to discuss in the future, you can hit us up on twitter we are at storyological which is story like the word oh like the letter and logical like aristotle you can follow emma on twitter she is at eg kosh and you can follow chris on twitter he is at kuvols and if you want to keep up with what stories we're reading and we're going to talk about in the future you can sign up for our newsletter which is at tinyletter.com slash storyological and if you have enjoyed this episode and we hope you have please go to your podcasting Uh, source of choice and leave us a friendly review because that helps other people find us and we like that and if you really like this episode which we hope you did you can go to our patreon page patreon.com slash storylogical and support us at whatever amount of money might seem 
appropriate to you. If you support us at $3 a month, Mark, you will receive Chris's newsletter in which he reviews some small part of everything he encounters that month. It is charming, it is weird, and it sometimes contains poetry. And of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, such as interviews with writers like Carmen Maria Machado or or Yukumi Agawa, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Gonna kill a murder kid. Is it a kid or is it a monster in Bruges? Little did you know that when you watched The New Girl with me, you would be like, oh my God, you are Zoe Deschanel. It's true. I, d- I didn't know I would do that. And, and I have not yet so far done that. Mm, yes. What's separating us, do you think? Is it the blue, blue eyes? <laughs> Is it the dark, dark hair? Is it the way she always talks like she's slightly t- drunk? That's whimsy. <laughs> Is it? Yeah, drunk that's, on whimsy. That's what whimsy sounds like. Yes. <laughs> Jimmy Jam Jones and I don't care. Jimmy Jam Jones and I don't care. Jimmy Jam, Jimmy Jam, Jim Jim Jams. Jimmy Jam, Jimmy Jimmy, Jim Jam Jams. James Joyce is from Ireland. James Joyce is from Ireland. But he left Dublin for Perry. He left Dublin for Perry. And then some stuff happened. Don't you believe it? It's all made up. I made up James Joyce. Made him right up like a pancake. Sloop, sloop, sloop. Splosh, splosh, splosh. A little bit to fry. Bam. Ulysses. Eat it up. Put a little maple syrup on top. Call it Virginia Wolf. Done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. Oh, man. Uh, okay. <laughs>